Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Good evening. Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. I am Deacon Sabatino Carnazzo, the founding director of the Institute. I want to begin by just thanking Father Fisher and all of the members of St. Ambrose. How many parishioners do we have here tonight from St. Ambrose? Pretty good, pretty good. Thank you very much for coming. And for all of those that traveled from far off distances, somebody said they had to park in Afghanistan. <laughs> we will begin in prayer if you could please stand. Your Excellency. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we ask you to send your Holy Spirit upon us as we gather this evening, that we may profit from our reflection on the Church, on what it means for us to belong to her, and to rejoice in that belonging, to be witnesses to the truth which she proclaims, and to live the life given us through the sacraments which she celebrates, and to bring to the world the love of Christ, which she proclaims and desires that we, in turn, give to others. So be with us in our reflection. Be with the cardinal electors as they follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit in the election of a new Holy Father. Be with us as we continue our Lenten journey, that we may be more purified in mind and heart, and so reflect more clearly the image of Christ Jesus. Give us your Holy Spirit, dear Lord, and we pray this through you, as you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Mary, Mother of the Church. Pray for us. St. Ambrose. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Thank you very much, Your Excellency. Our speaker this evening was ordained a priest for the Diocese of Norwich in 1965. That was, by the way, ten years before I was born, Your Excellency. <laughs> he was ordained in the Basilica of St. Peter in Rome, in 1988, he was ordained on auxiliary bishop for the Archdiocese of Hartford and was installed as the 11th Bishop of Ogdensburg, New York in 1994 and became the third Bishop of Arlington in 1999. Since coming to Arlington, Bishop Laverde has proved time and time again to be a strong and faithful leader. And as I prepared for our evening together, I remembered some words that Pope Benedict had shared in a homily for the Feast of Epiphany just this past year on January 6th. And I wanted to share them with you because I believe they reflect very much the work of our dear Bishop Laverde here in the Arlington Diocese. He says, How can we not think of the task of a bishop at our time? The humility of faith, 
of sharing the faith of the church of every age will constantly be in conflict with the prevailing wisdom of those who cling to what seems to be certain. Anyone who lives and proclaims the faith of the church is on many points out of step with the prevalent way of thinking in our own day. Today, reigning agnosticism has its own dogmas and is extremely intolerant regarding anything that would question it. Therefore, the courage to contradict the prevailing mindset is particularly urgent for a bishop today. He must be courageous, and in this courage or forcefulness does not consist in striking out or in acting aggressively, but rather in allowing oneself to be struck and to be steadfast before the principles of the prevalent way of thinking. The courage to stand firm in the truth is unavoidably demanded of those whom the Lord sends like sheep among the wolves. The successors of the apostles must also expect to be repeatedly abused by contemporary methods if they continue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that can be heard and understood. Then they can rejoice that they have been considered worthy of suffering for Christ. Your Excellency, we thank you for your courage that you have shown in holding up a steadfast way of faith. We thank you for being our devoted shepherd and guarding the church and leading us towards Christ. Please join me in welcoming Bishop Paul Laverde. Thank you so much. Good evening, brothers and sisters. Deacon, I am very grateful for your gracious words. I only ask that all here pray that I will be that faithful, courageous shepherd uh, whom uh, our Holy Father described so beautifully in that homily which he gave on Epiphany to uh, the newly ordained bishops of that day. I'd like to echo the gratitude that Deacon Sabatino spoke in terms of thanking Father Fisher and his staff for their gracious hospitality to us. I'm also grateful to you, dear deacon, and to your staff for all you do to make the truths of the faith so readily accessible to not only the people gathered here, but to people from far and wide and through the outline services you provide. And I ask the Lord to bless richly this institute that you are directing. Dear brothers and sisters, my reflection this evening is anchored in the Second Vatican Council, which began 50 years ago on October the 11th, 1962. Last October, on that very date, Pope Benedict XVI, now emeritus, inaugurated the Year of Faith, which will continue until November the 24th, 2013. For me, the Second Vatican Council is not merely an event in the history of the Roman Catholic Church. It is an event which I personally experienced. No, not in the sense that I took part in the four sessions of this council, each one occurring in the fall of 1962 1963, 1964, and 1965. 
neither in the sense that I was an observer at those sessions, if only for one or two of the daily sessions. I experienced the council personally because I was present at its opening session on October the 11th, 1962, and at its closing session in December of 1965. In addition, I was a seminarian in Rome during the entire four years in which the council sessions took place. I often saw the United States bishops arriving on Monday afternoon for their weekly meeting in the auditorium of the Pontifical North American College. I was in Rome during the council years because I had been sent there by my bishop to study theology at the Gregorian University while living as a seminarian at the Pontifical North American College so closely located to Vatican City. To this day, I remain ever grateful to Bishop Vincent J. Hines, the Bishop of Norwich, Connecticut, who was my bishop, for giving me a life-giving and enduring gift by assigning me to complete my seminary formation in Rome, the eternal city. Permit me to share with you my memory of the opening day of the Second Vatican Council. My class, seminarians from throughout the United States, 75 of us, had arrived in Rome a little less than a week before the beginning of the council. On the morning of October the 11th, which was in those days the feast of the divine motherhood of Mary, small groups of us, newly arrived men, were led by the older seminarians to St. Peter's Square. We were instructed just to follow our leaders wherever they led. However the leader of our group did it, I and others in my class ended up at the rail alongside the steps leading up to St. Peter's Basilica. I watched the long procession of bishops, archbishops, and cardinals in their white copes and mitres, slowly walking up the steps into the basilica. I was close enough to recognize my own bishop, Bishop Hines, and also Archbishop Henry J. O'Brien, the Archbishop of Hartford, who had confirmed me back in 1950. Of course, at the end of that procession was Pope John XXIII, now a blessed, seated on the Sede Gestatoria. A group of us was also able to enter the basilica, and from the rear of the basilica, we could see clearly down the long center aisle leading to the confessio above which rises so majestically the baldacchino in bronze, beneath which is the papal altar. The cardinals, archbishops, and bishops were seated on both sides of the center aisle in a tiered arrangement. There is a photo of this scene, and at the bottom of it, one can make out several seminarians 
from the Pontifical North American College, with their backs, obviously, to the camera. The type of cassock we wore identified us, and I'm convinced that one of them (laughs) was myself from the bald spot in the middle of the head. Well, putting aside that personal memory, may I share one which Pobank the Sixteenth described in his reflections on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the opening of the Second Vatican Council. He said this, It was a splendid day on 11 October 1962 when the Second Vatican Council opened with the solemn procession into St. Peter's Basilica in Rome of more than 2,000 council fathers. In 1931, Pius XI had dedicated this day to the feast of the Divine Motherhood of Mary, mindful that 1,500 years earlier, in 431, the Council of Ephesus had solemnly recognized this title for Mary in order to express God's indissoluble union with man in Christ. Pope John XXIII had chosen this day for the beginning of the council so as to entrust the great ecclesial assembly, which he had convoked, to the motherly goodness of Mary and to anchor the council's work firmly in the mystery of Jesus Christ. It was impressive to see in the entrance procession bishops from all over the world, from all peoples and all races, an image of the Church of Jesus Christ, which embraces the whole world, in which peoples of the earth know they are united in his peace. End of quote. As you are aware, 16 documents are the fruits of the Second Vatican Council. Both Blessed Pope John II and Pope Benedict XVI consider this council as the greatest gift of the Holy Spirit to the Church in the 20th century. In his letter announcing the year of faith, entitled Porta Fidei, the door of faith, Pope the XVI made this point quite clear, and I quote, In some respects, my venerable predecessor saw this year, meaning the year of faith, as a consequence and a necessity of the post-conciliar period, fully conscious of the grave difficulties of the time, especially with regard to the profession of the true faith and its correct interpretation. It seemed to me that timing the launch of the year of faith to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the opening of the Second Vatican Council would provide a good opportunity to help people understand that the texts bequeathed by the Council Fathers, in the words of Blessed John Paul II, have lost nothing of their value or brilliance. They need to be read correctly, to be widely known, and taken to heart as important 
and normative texts of the magisterium within the church's tradition. Pope went on, quoting Pope John Paul II, I feel more than ever in duty bound to point to the council as the great grace bestowed on the church in the 20th century. There we find a sure compass by which to take our bearings in the century now beginning. And then Pope Benedict went on to add his own words. I would like also to emphasize strongly what I had occasion to say concerning the council a few months after my election as successor of Peter. If we interpret and implement it by a right hermeneutic, it can be and can become increasingly powerful for the ever-necessary renewal of the church. End of quote. In the intervening years since the end of the council, many different versions of its teaching, and therefore of its significance and authority, have been put forth. Some of these are, in fact, gross misinterpretations and or misapplications of the texts and have led to much confusion and even among some people rejection of the council and its authority. That is why we must take to heart and put into practice what both Blessed John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI instruct us to do especially in this year of faith, to read the texts correctly, to make them widely known, and have those texts taken to heart as important and normative texts of the magisterium within the church's tradition. In other words, we are not to ignore them or to dismiss them. Of the 16 documents, some have truly deep and significant implications for our continuing journey of faith. Among these I would name the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium, the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation, Dei Verbum, and the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, Gaudium et Spes. Other documents include the decree on ecumenism, the decree on the apostolate of the laity, and the declaration on religious liberty. Now, I do not mean to lessen the importance of the other documents, which treat social communications, the Catholic Eastern Churches, the pastoral office of bishops, the renewal of religious life, the training of priests, the ministry and life of priests, Christian education, the relation of the church to non-Christian religions, and the church's missionary activity. Quite a wide breadth of issues to be understood and correctly interpreted. 
Tonight, though, I want to focus our attention on one of these documents, namely the dogmatic constitution on the church entitled Lumen Gentium. It is essential, in my judgment, for people everywhere, and especially for us Catholics, to understand the nature of the church, her structure, her membership, and the relationships among her members, the call to universal holiness addressed to every member, the goal of belonging to the church, and the best example of what it means to be a member of the church found in the Blessed Virgin Mary. Originally, the proposed draft of this document put the hierarchy of the church first. But the fathers of the council, that's the name given to the cardinals, archbishops, and bishops who participated in the four sessions, the council fathers requested a redrafting of the proposed document which came about or resulted after much discussion and debate. All of that debate and discussion is now evident in the present format of this dogmatic constitution on the church. There are eight chapters. First, the mystery of the church. Secondly, the people of God. Thirdly, the church is hierarchical. Fourthly, the laity. Fifthly, the call to holiness. Sixthly, the religious. In the seventh place, the pilgrim church. In the final and eighth chapter, Our Lady. I would now like to reflect with you on each of these eight chapters, oh, not exhaustively on each, because we would have to be here for a whole semester. But summarizing the sense of each, along with pointing out mistaken interpretations by some and the disastrous effects that have resulted, as well as pointing to applications for our greater growth in faith. So let's begin with chapter one. The church is a mystery above all. Like all mysteries in our theological understanding of that word, the church is a reality which the human mind cannot totally grasp. Yet it is a reality which can be understood, applied, and lived in ways that help us and strengthen us. Because the church is a mystery. No one human model or analogy expresses her total Meaning, as you are aware, Cardinal Avery Dulles, now deceased, proposed five models for the church and later added a sixth. Each one does capture an aspect of the church's nature, but not all six together completely capture the mystery or nature of the church. Church is a sacrament, therefore a sign. In fact, some call the church the eighth sacrament. It is the sign of communion with God 
and of unity among all peoples. God the Father always had a plan for the church, a plan that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament with the chosen people of Israel. God the Father then sent his Son to establish the church, to be the fulfillment of the chosen people in the Old Testament, and therefore the new people of God in the New Testament. God the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost to continually give life to the church. Thus, the universal church is seen to be a people brought into unity from the unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That quote itself is taken from a much earlier father of the church, St. Cyprian. What richness we have in that reality. The Holy Trinity is the model for the church universal as a community of people united in faith and love, as well a model for the particular or diocesan churches, as well a model for the domestic church, the family. I would invite us to ponder the richness of that unity that we see in the Trinity to be relived now in the church universal, in our diocesan church, and in the family. It is from this understanding that the fundamental notion of communio, or communion, was born and since the council developed even more. Our Holy Father, after his announcement of his impending resignation, met with the priests of Rome. It's his custom to do that each year. He met with the priests and the bishops of Rome on February the 14th of this year, and he commented in his remarks on the Second Vatican Council. As he put it in his opening words to them, I thought about chatting on the Second Vatican Council as I saw it. Now, his message was not written. He spoke it spontaneously, orally. So the transcription of it is at times uneven. Nonetheless, it's such a beautiful, beautiful document. But regarding the church, he said this. After the 40s and in the 50s, a little criticism of the concept of the body of Christ had already been born. Mystic, someone said. It is too exclusive and the risk overshadowing the concept of the people of God. And the council, the Pope went on, rightly accepted this fact, which in the Fathers is considered an expression of the continuity between the Old and New Testaments. We were pagans. We are not in of ourselves the people of God but we become the children of Abraham and therefore the people of God by entering into communion with Christ, who is the only seed of Abraham. And entering into communion with him, being one with him, 
we too are people of God. That is, the concept of the people of God implies continuity of the Testaments, continuity of God's history in the world with men, but also it implies a Christological element. Only through Christology do we become the people of God, and the two concepts are united. And the council, the Pope went on, and the council decided to create a Trinitarian construction of ecclesiology, the people of God, reflecting the Father, the body of Christ, and the temple of the Holy Spirit. Then the Pope went on. But only after the council was an element that had been somewhat hidden brought to light, even as early as the council itself, that is, the link between the people of God the body of Christ, and their communion with Christ in the Eucharistic union. Here we become the body of Christ, he said, that is, the relationship between the people of God and the body of Christ creates a new reality, that is, the communion. And the council, he continued, led to the concept of communion, or communio, as a central concept. I would say philosophically it had not yet fully matured in the council, but it is the result of the council that the concept of communio becomes more and more an expression of the sense of the church. Communion in different dimensions. Communion with the triune God, who himself is a communion between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The sacramental communion. Concrete communion in the episcopate, and in the life of the church. I repeat, dear friends, there is so much richness in this fundamental aspect of the church seen as communio. It provides us with the key to understanding our unity in the faith, in the practice of that faith, in the complementarity of our relationship with one another within the church. You see, too often people, and among them our own Catholics, reduce the church to one model or to several. But because each model or analogy is limited, people then begin to find fault with the church in a way that is beyond a constructive critique. Or people then excuse themselves from participating in the church's life or ignoring and even denying her teachings. For example, we hear, don't we, the church is just an institution, and with leaders who make terrible mistakes, so why should I listen, or obey, or even belong? We hear that all the time. You see it in the paper these days, you read the Washington Post, or whatever you read. Well, yes, the history of the church demonstrates the weaknesses and even sinfulness of some of her leaders. The church's leaders are human, and human beings are imperfect and prone to evil. But in her teaching, the church is guaranteed the assistance of the Holy Spirit. So in matters relating to our salvation, the church cannot err in teaching. 
Nonetheless, her members, including some of her leaders, are always in need of ongoing conversion and deepening growth and holiness. There is that ancient axiom that rings true. Ecclesia semper reformanda est. That is, the church is always being reformed and renewed. But we must not forget this fact. No other institution could have survived 2,000 years of internal conflict and difficulty, as well as external oppression and persecution, if it were only human. It should have ended long ago. But there is a divine element within the church. That is why she continues and will continue until the end of time. Sometimes, too, we hear this position spoken very much in our contemporary world. I believe in Christ, of course I do, but I just ignore the church. But you see, we must address such a position this way. You can't separate Christ and the church. This is so evident in seeing the church, first of all, has the mystical body of Christ. Christ is the head, we're the members. It's also so evident in the reality of communio, rooted in that mystery of one God in three persons, as we have observed earlier. But while the image of the Trinity is so fundamental to the nature of the church, other images in Scripture also reveal her many facets. So we find in chapter 1 a number of other titles or images of the church. For example, the church is the sheepfold whose one door is Christ. The church is a piece of land to be cultivated. The church is the vine and the branches. The church is the building of God, and we are the living stones. And, of course, the mystical body of Christ. Christ the head, we the members. Now, there's much more in chapter 1, but I think I will um, stop there, for, at least for the moment, and try to pass on to chapter 2. After all, we have 8 to go through. <laughs> You're probably groaning within already. <laughs> As I mentioned, there are many names given to the church to describe her, and we've seen those. Chapter 2 is entitled, The People of God. Now, that's an image or a title rooted in both in the Old Testament for example, there we saw the covenant people were the people of the Old Testament or covenant. Christ was sent to begin a new people of God, to fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies. And so he inaugurated the new covenant by the shedding of his own blood. And through baptism, we become members of the church. We become a priestly people. Now let me stop there a minute and explain that because that can be so often misunderstood. Every baptized person shares in the one priesthood of Christ. Yet there is a real distinction, a real difference between the priesthood of the baptized and the ministerial priesthood, the priesthood exercised by those in holy orders. 
And whenever you are at a Mass of Ordination, the beautiful uh, preface, also used at the Mass of Chrism, reflects so beautifully in its wording this distinction, where there is one priestly people, yet from out of them Christ calls with the brother's love men to exercise that ministerial priesthood. But I think it's important for us to remember that baptism makes all of us a priestly people in the sense that all of the baptized would sanctify the world by making a spiritual sacrifice of all they are and do each day. There's a beautiful paragraph in Lumen Gentium whereby we are reminded that the laity all of us, in fact, not just the laity, are to make of our daily lives the ordinary things we do, the crosses we encounter, the joys we celebrate, everything becomes so much of a spiritual sacrifice then to be united with the sacrifice of the Eucharist in one great act of praise and worship to God. When you think about that, think about the dignity that each of us has by baptism and how we are meant to sanctify all we are and do in our ordinary worlds each day. Wow. It gives us a whole new sense of who we are. No wonder Pope St. Leo could express on Christmas Day in one of his homilies, Oh, Christian, remember your dignity. What a dignity we have. And sadly, I think so many of us forget it, or maybe don't even know it yet. Within this chapter, then, that speaks about our entrance into the church through baptism, then we're reminded of all the other sacraments whereby this priestly people is brought into being and is then sustained in life. For confirmation binds us more perfectly to Christ and gives us the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In the Eucharist, we take part in the dying rising of Christ. In penance, we're reconciled to both God and the church. In the anointing of the sick, we commend the suffering of each person to the greater church, praying for healing of soul and of body. In holy orders, men are configured to Christ, ontologically changed into his image, to offer sacrifice and to feed the church by the sacraments, by the preaching, by pastoral care and marriage. Two people reflecting the union of Christ to the church, sanctifying each other and bringing into the world new life. It's just amazing the dignity that we have as the people of God. In the same chapter, we treat about how important faith and baptism are for salvation. So that says, well, what about other people then who are not baptized or who don't belong fully to the church? And here we're reminded, catechumens, if they were to die before they're baptized, would have salvation because of their desire, the baptism of desire. How about non-Catholic Christians? Well, they're baptized. They're not in full communion with us. And here we remember another statement of this document, that the church which Christ founded subsists fully 
within the Roman Catholic Church, although elements of that church are found in other ecclesial communities. Jews and Muslims, well, they believe in God, they don't believe in Christ, but they can be saved through that belief. And how about people who just, through no fault of the road, have no religion at all, but they desire to do what is good and follow their conscience? These are ways that people can achieve salvation. But you see, to belong to the body of Christ is such a sure way. It, it provides so much more certainty of how to get to heaven. That's why we go out and want to have everybody come to Jesus. That's why we're so involved with the new evangelization, to bring people into union with the one who satisfies all the longings of the human heart, including that longing within each of us for something more than this life offers. We also see in this chapter the complementary nature of the church. There's one people of God, but within that one people, there are different roles and status of people. And we will see how the documents, within a minute, then further specifies those different kinds of people. There are those ordained, the bishops, priests, and deacons. There are those who are the lay people. There are those who take religious vows. These are different types of people within the one people of God. But that's not understood very often. I'm amused sometimes when um, I sit and I hear people say, you know, the laity are the people of God, Father. No, sorry. The laity are part of the people of God. Everyone else is as well. The bishops and the priests are also the people of God. Not just the laity. Or we hear... Why do I have to call you Father? Can I call you by your first name? Well, I have been ordained. I have an ontologically different status. There's a real distinction, not to be over you, but I am changed by ordination. Or we hear the whole issue still, sadly, about the ordination of women. I, I just get tired of hearing of it. <laughs> well, I get tired of it because it's so badly misunderstood. We are all equal in the church. Yes, but we have complementary roles. Equality does not mean sameness. And that's what people confuse. We're, we don't have to do the same thing to be equal. The church is not able to ordain women, not because she hates women, but because she is convinced that in the divine plan, men are to be ordained as they reflect Christ, the priest, a male. Sometimes, you know, we forget. Women have more power <laughs> in the church in some ways than we realize. When you think of what women have done in the church, Religious women who founded a whole educational system, who founded a whole hospital system. Talk about power and, 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 and strength. Oh, we have such a mixed up understanding. But I feel badly because some people get sucked into this, this false understanding and then they're hurt 
the bishop wants a confirmation that how many sacraments there are. It's one of the reasons I don't ask questions because I, I really want to teach anyway, because the bishop's supposed to teach. But my point is, in the old days, a lot of questions were asked, and some still do. The bishop asked how many sacraments there are, and um, one of the about-to-be-confirmed young ladies put up her hand, and she said, seven for men and six for women. <laughs> I'm not sure what I would have said back. <laughs> well, let me go on. Chapter 3 speaks then about the hierarchical nature of the church. The church is not a democracy. Be clear about that. The church is a hierarchical entity. It has a level of authority within it. And that hierarchy is made up of the pope and bishops, official teachers in the church. And authority is seen as service to the people of God, not power, but service. Through Episcopal ordination, a bishop, and through the bishop, the priest, is given in a particular way the officer function of teaching, sanctifying, and governing, specific to his role as bishop or priest or deacon. Within the same understanding of the hierarchical nature of the church, we see how the College of Apostles, being the Pope and the Apostles as one reality, are now made present in our world by the College of Bishops, the Pope and the Bishops united as one reality. I say that because once in a while I'll have somebody say to me, well, you claim that bishops are successors of the Apostles, so Bishop, which Apostle do you succeed? <laughs> well... I don't succeed one apostle. The College of Bishops succeeds the College of Apostles. Very clear in the document. Also in this document, we are told that bishops have the jurisdiction, that is, the authority over the portion of the people of God given over to them, which is what we call a diocese. And within the same document, we're made aware of that unity that exists between each bishop and the pope, and therefore between each diocese and the Church of Rome. And where do we see that so beautifully every time we go to Mass? In the Eucharistic prayer. Have you ever noticed we always pray for whoever, our pope, and whoever, our bishop? It's precisely to show the unity that we have. We are one church made up of individual dioceses, but we make up one universal church. There is a real unity. Priests are co-workers of the bishops. They're ordained, yes, but they are co-workers of the bishops, and deacons are ordained to assist both the bishop and the priests. The deacon's specificity is that of service, service at the altar, service at the word, and service in charity. Again, there's much more in this third chapter, but it's important, I think, that we remember, because again, we forget it, the church is not a democracy, and that's for so many people out there. You know, you read articles and you hear people talking, and, well, you know, uh, we should now, you know, have kind of a, a referendum on what is moral in the church. No, we're not having referendums. <laughs> uh, no, no, we have a teaching that comes from God through the human instruments that he has given us called Pope and Bishops. 
And another aside I want to make, because a lot of this is going to be practical things I see, the bishops are the official teachers of the church. And I get very frustrated when I see some people or even groups within the church claiming to teach. They have no official... The bishops are the official teachers. I don't mean that people can't speak. But my point is that sometimes you will have some groups or people and they would somehow point themselves to be the official teachers of the church. There are official teachers, namely the Pope and the bishops, united with him. The fourth chapter, look at the laity, because they're another part of the people of God. One people within which there are bishops and priests and deacons, the clergy, and then there are the laity, those who do not belong to the clergy and who do not belong to religious orders or religious institutes. But everyone is called to be holy, and I will get back to that later on in another chapter. But there are no second-class citizens in the church. We're all called to be holy. And that's probably a little bit of a change with some of us who were older, because when I was a little boy, the understanding was that really the, the priests were holy people, and we were like at the end of the train. <laughs> we were the caboose. They were at the front. Well, we're all called to be holy according to our own state in life. The laity also participate in the threefold function of Christ as priest, prophet, and king. But they do according to their own status in life. They participate in the priesthood of Christ, as I said earlier, by worshiping at Mass and by making of their daily life a spiritual sacrifice. They participate in the prophetic office of Christ by evangelizing and witnessing in the world. The laity also participate in the kingly role of Christ by spreading the kingdom of God. That's how they participate in those three functions. Bishops and priests participate in them in a different way. The proper field for the laity is the society in which we live. I can't say how important your role is in the worlds in which you live of making those places holy by your own witness of life, and also then by your proclaiming the truth in different ways, the truth that really saves people. The fifth chapter is called The Universal Call to Holiness. So what have we done so far? We saw the churches of mystery, founded on the unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then that church in reality is seen in many ways as the people of God, within which there are the bishops and priests, and now there are the laity, and everybody is called to be holy. And so this chapter reminds us that, as I said earlier, there are no second-class citizens. We are all called to be very holy, that is, to be like Christ. And I think, again, that's something that has such implications in our world if we would think about that. Let me just use one example. It's how we dress. Now, I say that because I get often annoyed by how people dress in lots of places, but especially in church. Now, let me be clear. I don't mean people have to come to church with the most expensive suit or dress they could find. I don't mean that at all. What I mean, though, is when you come to church, you're appropriately dressed for church. 
You're not going to the beach. We're not going out to play rugby or whatever we're going to play. And so you come properly clothed. Furthermore, in our society, the body is not seen as it's meant to be, the temple of the Holy Spirit. When we clothe the body in, in a certain way, not because we're ashamed of how God made us, but because it's such a beautiful reality that it's to be kept enclosed by proper vesture, and you know what our society is like. So that's one of the implications of understanding we're called to be holy, called to be like Christ. If only we could get that message not only to ourselves but into our children. The sixth chapter takes a group of people, the laity, and indicates how they, some of them, are called not to be priests, but to live a particular kind of life that is anchored in the three evangelical councils of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Some of the religious institutes are for people who live cloistered, contemplative lives. We have in our own diocese three such. We have the Poor Clares at Alexandria, the Dominican Sisters in Linden, and the Trappists down in Berryville. Other religious institutes are more active. They're out teaching, nursing, involved in parochial ministry. Those are some of the ways that religious live out their particular call from God to witness to Christ, the poor one, poverty. Christ, the chaste one, chastity or celibacy. And Christ, the obedient one, obedience. The seventh chapter refers to the church as a pilgrim church. It reminds us that we're all on a journey because the goal of belonging to the church is one day to arrive at that unity with God and see God face to face as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we're a pilgrim people. And that picks up the image beautifully of the Old Testament chosen people on pilgrimage as they went from Egypt to the Promised Land. It's also a beautiful image that we're imperfect and we need to proceed in pilgrimage always trying to be renewed and reclaimed as the season of Lent reminds us. Season of Lent is a reclaiming of our baptismal consecration that we could live that more perfectly because we're still a pilgrim people. Within this chapter, reminded of the unity that exists between the church on earth, the church in heaven, and the church in purgatory. That whole communion of saints. There's so many treasures of our faith that I sometimes feel we've lost or we've forgotten and we don't teach people enough. We're all united. So... While on earth we try to help one another by our ways of reaching out and assisting people to live good lives. And then we know when we go from this life to the next, we're not always perfectly ready to enter heaven. There's a midway point called purgatory where we are more purified, made ready for that final state. We can help those people, those souls in purgatory by our prayers, by having the mass offered for them. And then there are those already in heaven, the church in heaven, the saints whom we venerate. And here in this chapter, too, we're reminded 
of how important in our life of faith is the veneration of saints. No, we don't adore them. We venerate them. The only people we adore are God, uh, is God. God has Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but the others we venerate. It's very understandable. We venerate our loved ones at home, uh, in our families, don't we? We have their pictures on the wall. We dedicate buildings to them at times. While on earth, we try to communicate with them. Why is it so different with the saints? We venerate them. Finally, though, we come to the eighth chapter. Now, originally, the Council Fathers had thought there would be a separate document on the Blessed Virgin Mary. But then, in their debate and discussion, they came to the conclusion that rather than a separate document, they would make the eighth chapter of this document on the church devoted to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Why? Because she is the best and perfect model of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, of what it means to be a faithful member of the people of God or of the mystical body of Christ, whatever image you wish. She is the best and perfect model. She had that obedience of faith, so evident in the Annunciation when God revealed to her through the angel that he wanted to be the mother of the Savior. And once she realized his plan, what did she say? Yes, let it be. What a model to us. Because in that yes, she didn't know all that was contained. It isn't that she got a book ahead of time. And it said, okay, now, you know, on this date you're going to do this, and on this date you're going to encounter that. No, no. She said yes, and then had to discover what the yes meant, how it meant going from Nazareth to Bethlehem when she was nearly ready to deliver her child. Those of us who've been to the Holy Land can understand even better what a journey that was. And she made it, you know, on a donkey, not in a car or bus as we may have done. And then that yes took her to uh, give birth to her son, and then the flight into Egypt and all that that meant. And then later when she lost her son at 12 years old, those of you here who are mothers, you understand, fathers too, you both know what it means to lose a child, to wonder where he is, what have we done wrong? And then all those years she spent with Jesus were very beautiful in Nazareth, but finally he left her and she was a widow. And she heard about him. Yes, he was loved in many places, but also there were others who didn't love him. What does a mother feel when she hears that her son is misunderstood, ill-treated? Even some of the relatives thought he was insane, as Mark says. And then finally came the suffering, her place at the foot of the cross. What does a mother feel like when she receives the broken, bruised body of her son. What did she feel and experience once he was just a beautiful little baby in her arms? Now, innocent, he was murdered. And now he lies in those same arms and not beautiful, terribly, terribly misfigured by the cruelty of people. But she was strong in faith. And three days later, he rose. And the Gospels don't say it, but surely he must have visited her first. What son would not? <laughs> All of those yeses, that's why she's a model for us, a model of obedience. We see in that same chapter how 
she shared in the redemption of Christ. We can't call her co-redemptrix. Not that redemption doesn't come solely from Christ. Of course it does. But he has a way of incorporating others to share in it. And did she not give birth to the Redeemer so that all of us could be saved? Did not she become our mother when Jesus gave her to John, symbolizing all of us? Is she still not a mother in heaven praying for us? That's why devotion to Mary is so real, which the council document says. I, you know, I grew up for all those years after the council. I'm one of those old people who have a, one foot in the older church and one foot in the newer church, one pre-council foot and one post-council foot. And I have experienced the wonderful things and the not-so-wonderful things of the intervening years and still remember how there were some who got up in pulpits and decried devotion to Our Lady and did horrible things. I don't know what they were about. But that's not what the council asked. The council didn't ask that we not devote our veneration to Mary. Is the highest form of the veneration of saints belongs to Mary. The council was just saying that at liturgy, we take part in the liturgy. It's not the time to say the rosary while we're, we should be taking part in the mass. Terribly misunderstood. So we do have in this document a strong encouragement of devotion to Our Lady because she remains for us the best model of how to be a disciple, the best model of how to belong to the people of God, the best model of how to be growing in holiness and reach one day that union with God which she already experiences. She's the first one because upon her leaving this life, she was brought to heaven, body and soul. We celebrate that in the Assumption. Well, dear friends, I um, hope I haven't put you to sleep. But that's kind of an overview of the document. It is, to me, a very important document. In fact, I'm convinced that if more Catholics understood the nature of the Church, understood this document, we would have probably half of the confusion and mistakes we seem to be encountering all the time because people have just gotten into such uh, misinterpretations, misunderstandings of who the church is. And that's why we have some of the more, more outrageous things people say or do, all in the name of Vatican II, and it isn't anything related to Vatican II at all, but that's where we are. So I hope this explanation, while not profoundly deep, has enabled you to see what a beautiful gift God gives us and calling us to membership in the church. Such a gift we don't deserve, but his love has brought us there. And how that gift should enable us to be aware of our dignity, to wear that dignity as we're meant to be, sons and daughters of God, adopted yet real. I hope that we will understand how we can be more involved in the life of the church, how we can witness to the beauty of her teachings, and how we can call others to come to Christ and to the body, to the people he has founded, so that they too with us can experience an inner joy and a peace. They too one day, please God, for us too, we can all be united in the church in heaven at the end of our pilgrimage. So, thank you very much. May we become ever more faithful members of the church.
Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I know they're not my shit. Thank you. Thank you very much, Your Excellency. I was thinking about just a few of the wonderful words that Bishop Laverde has shared with us this evening. I received a phone call just a few days ago from a gentleman who had recently converted to the church, and he said to me, Deacon Sabatino, he was from California, and he had been listening to some of our programs online. He said, I'm struggling with my attendance at Mass, and I'm thinking about not continuing. And I said, why? And he says, because of the teachings that the Vatican II invented and took the church in the wrong direction. And I said, have you read these teachings of Vatican II? He said, no. That simply is what the Institute of Catholic Culture is all about. It's telling the truth about our faith against those who would tell lies about it and draw people into the snare of the devil. Our mission statement the Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization faithful to the magisterium of the Catholic Church, faithful to the bishops who teach us. And so we thank you, Bishop Laverde, for your excellent presentation this evening. We add it to our 400-hour-plus library for those that are struggling with the faith can go and there learn the teachings of the Catholic Church. Thank you, Excellency, for a great talk. Um, you, you had mentioned that we were a pilgrim church. Uh, we, we're currently embarked upon the pilgrimage of Lent. Could you give some practical pointers how we as a lady could become holier through this, this pilgrimage of Lent so that we reach our ultimate goal of heaven? Okay. Well, uh, it's, it would seem to me that uh, the, the way we could make of this pilgrimage through Lent more practical and, and more helpful through God's grace is really just to take advantage of the three traditional ways the church has always put before us in terms of observing Lent. And those three ways actually are rooted in the gospel of St. Matthew that we use on Ash Wednesday. So first of all, there's prayer. Prayer is more than words. Prayer is being with the Lord, an experience of being with him. Um, prayer expresses our dependence upon the Lord, our acknowledgement that without him we can do nothing. So I would say that during Lent, certainly we ought to pray the prayers we've always prayed with greater devotion. But maybe we could also add, for example, what could we, if we don't already do that, take five, ten minutes or so uh, longer if we're led to that, but begin slowly, begin to Begin on a grandiose plan, you'll never go anywhere. You have to begin slowly, but take five to ten minutes and ponder the word of God, say the gospel for each Lenten day. What's the message there? Because the word of God is so rich for us. So prayer there, prayer as I say, in, in, if we are able to take part in the Holy Mass every day. If not every day, maybe more than just on Sunday, depending on our age, our schedule, our jobs. Prayer too, in the sense of prayerfully meeting Christ in the sacrament of penance, uh, where we experience his divine mercy. Uh, so first of all, prayer. That it's not just words. Prayer is, is that experience of being with the Lord. And then fasting and penance. Not because uh, we want to become thinner. Uh, not for those reasons, although we might become thinner 
But fasting is a way of, of purifying us, of reminding us of the real hunger we have, not just for food, but for God. And then acts of penance. Penance is a way of self-discipline so that we can discipline our will to respond better to the Lord who comes to us. Penance helps us to be freed from those things that grip us so that we can be free for the Lord and his will. And penance can take both negative and positive aspects. Sometimes we give up things. That's a way of doing penance, expressing our sorrow. Sometimes penance, though, is a pot. We do something more. So I may give up watching television for as long as I've been watching it, you know, every day. Maybe I should cut that down or not see a program that's it's all right. It's not a bad program, but it'd be good just to give it up. Or maybe uh, penance would be that I go and visit the nursing home. How many people in nursing homes have no one to see them? So penance could be both positive in a way or negative. Fasting penance. And the third way is almsgiving, deeds of mercy to others, whereby we reach from our own resources to give to others who have even less. And uh, those are the ways that Jesus outlined in the gospel. So I think we would use those. Those are very helpful ways to aid us on this pilgrimage as we're going through the 40 days of Lent. In some ways, the 40 days are seen as the church's annual retreat in which we are to be led closer. The, the hope is that when we come to the end of Lent, when we emerge with Christ from death to life, we are clearer images of him. Then it means we should try to be doing the rest of the year what, we also, what we've also done in Lent. St. Leo said so beautifully in one of the earlier readings, uh, I think it's on Thursday or Friday, right after Ash Wednesday, St. Leo said, we ought to do with Lent more, more fervently what we should be doing all year long. So it's not like, I'm good for 40 days. Hey, Lord, now I go back to my old way. <laughs> no, 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 no. Lent is just a deepening of what we do so we're more equipped for the rest of the year. Hope that helped. You mentioned that in the Lumen Gentium, there's a whole chapter on Our Lady, and I think that's something that a lot of people, especially Protestants that we know, get caught up on because Mary comes in between us and Jesus and gets in the way, and how do we kind of explain Mary to them and help them understand the important role that she plays? Okay. Well, I think, first of all, it's, it's absolutely uh, essential that we make clear that Mary does not get in the way between Christ and us. And we can quote the scripture, there is only one mediator between man and God, namely Jesus Christ. Mary's role is to assist us to get to Christ. And the words she speaks, very little words recorded in the scriptures of Our Lady, but the last we have in John's Gospel is the advice she gave to the waiters, do whatever he tells you. And so I would make clear to Protestants, uh, to you know, those who don't understand, that no, she doesn't get in the way of Christ. She leads us to Christ. Her whole desire is to lead us closer to Christ. And if we venerate her so specially, because we see her as the mother of God. And who of us would not want to honor our mother? It's not worship we give to her. It's veneration and honor. And no, she doesn't get in between. And that's clear, certainly, in all the teachings we have had from the very beginning. It's also clear in the prayers we offer. I don't know of any authentically Catholic prayer to Our Lady 
that ever, you know, makes her into being God or takes the place of God. I think there's something very much in our hearts that we love to go to our mothers for their understanding and help. Um, I don't know if that helps, but I think you have to be clear with Protestants. You know, we, no, we, we don't adore her. We don't say that she takes us from Christ or, or even is between us and Christ. Do we ask her help? Yes, we do. In that sense, one could visualize that she's between us and Christ, but it's not an obstacle. If anything, she's a conduit. She's a channel through which, because her only desire is to bring us to Jesus. Okay? Next. Your Excellency, Chapter 7 that you discussed, Pilgrim Church, brought me back to yesterday at the men's conference when Dr. Keith spoke about Revelations, the book of Revelations. Am I making a, a wise connection there? Yeah, I didn't hear what he said yesterday because I missed his conference, but I, I would certainly see the book of Revelation. First of all, the book of Revelation was written to give comfort and consolation to people experiencing persecution in the early church. And it does remind us of what lies ahead. It leads up to the new heaven and new earth. And so I can see the connection that, I mean, we are on that pilgrimage trying to get to the new heavens and the new earth, the goal set before us. So in that sense, I see a connection. Is that what he was saying? I'm not sure what you're... He was expressing how many of us misunderstand revelations and the culmination of Scripture. Mm-hmm. What we're looking at is the, the New Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Unity. Yeah, Unity. and so it is. It's the same idea. We're on pilgrimage. It's a different way of, of expressing the same reality. What prompted Vatican II? Why was it necessary? Pope John XXIII saw that we were in need of stating the ancient truths of the faith in ways that would be more understandable to the modern society. The truths don't change the reality of the truth, but can be expressed in a way that engages people to understand the beauty of that truth. And ultimately, he saw Vatican II as the way for the church, for the members of the church, to become holy. The holiness of life was at the bottom of it all. That's why he called it, I think he was divinely inspired, and it would seem that John Paul II, now blessed and our own recently retired Holy Father, has said, these are a great gift to the church if we understand correctly the text. That's the problem. Thank you. Thank you very much, Your Excellency. Well, thank you. If we understand correctly the text, I encourage you to go home this evening and to pull out your documents of Vatican II. If you don't have them, there's no excuse. You get on the Vatican website and download them and print them off and read them for yourself. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.